0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen, about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Harran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the Director of the Center for Spirituality and Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Heidi, welcome, and how have you been?
1: Well, I've been busy, David, as I know we always say that, but it's all been good things. It's been great to get out and about and be going to various events. I think I might have shared before that I had been heading to an event at Loyola University here in Chicago, and then also I was headed down to Catholic Theological Union for twice for events already, and I'm going again tomorrow night for one of their events. So let's see if I can remember them all. Ellen Koenig speaking from Commonweal, Bishop John Stowe speaking at Loyola, a discerning deacons event at Theological Union that featured a rainbow cone ice cream was one of the, only one of the highlights and a Pax Christi event there as well. So I know that's partially these academic institutions tend to have a lot of programs at the end of the year. So, And getting ready for our own event, which will be over by the time this show drops, of course, our live taping of the Francis Effect at St. Mary's, which I'm so excited to be heading back to the town of my alma mater. So how about you, Dan? I know you're busy getting ready to host us.
2: Yeah, we're very excited about that. And actually, as people are listening to this, we will have hosted us to what was a, a successful, amazing live recording at the time of this recording, yet to be determined. But I I walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah, it's been very busy. Two weeks ago, we had our one of our flagship programs, the Annual Mataleva Lecture, which is the most prestigious lecture for a woman theologian in Catholic theology. This year's lecturer was Professor Christy Traina, the Avery Dulles Professor of Catholic Theology at Fordham. And we announced next year's Nataleva lecturer, which is Professor Natalia Imperatori Lee from Manhattan College. We're really thrilled. So save the date, April 11th, 2024. After that, we finished that lecture. And the next day I flew to New Haven where I gave a lecture at St. Thomas More Catholic Center at Yale University, the annual Robert Boulogne Lecture in Contemporary Theology, where, very relevant to what we're doing here, I was invited to talk about public theology and podcasting. It was their idea. I hadn't really given a ton of thought prior to the invitation some months ago to thinking theologically, kind of analytically about the podcast. And it was both intimidating and exciting. And I hope reflective. At various times, I qualified it by saying I'm speaking for myself and not for Heidi and David, but they did get ample shout outs. And there are a lot of folks who I met over the weekend at the lecture before and after who are fans of the podcast. So, so shout out to all those who joined us in person or virtually at Yale. It was a real blast. So thanks also to the folks at St. Thomas More who who hosted me. And then just a shout out as well that here at St. Mary's College, we've got a lot going on. And one of the things that we're really excited about, in addition to hosting The Francis Effect this coming Thursday, or yesterday, if you're listening to this as it drops, is the annual International Thomas Merton Society conference, which is taking place June 22nd to 25th, and we have a an amazing lineup of speakers, including plenary speakers such as Sister Simone Campbell, famously of Network and Nuns on a Bus. We have Dr. Shannon D. Williams. We have Dr. Sophia Park. We have Dr. Maria Clara Binghamer, who's a Catholic theologian from Brazil, and just so many other folks. So. Check that out at Merton.org to learn more and to sign up, to register, to come to the conference. We have discounted early bird discount up to May 1st. So you have a few days after this episode drops to get the discount, but it's going to be a real blast. David, what have you been up to?
0: Well... In the immediate couple of hours before we sat down to record this, I went and gathered a bunch of audio equipment that I'm going to be trucking down to Saint Mary's College later this week. And let me just say to to listeners, that's kind of me in my happy place when I'm actually thinking about logistics and thinking about how I'm going to solve the audio situation there for the three of us. Like that actually is a very pleasant thing for me to engage myself in. So it was an enjoyable morning. I don't always like traveling, but I. I'm so looking forward to seeing the two of you that that overcomes the anxiety that I sometimes feel about getting out of my regular routine. And I have to say, just as you've talked about some conferences coming up, Dan, and things like that, I'm very excited that over the next six weeks, I'm going to have the chance to give some papers, give some keynotes, work with some colleagues on some projects. So all that is great coming together. As this season is ending, summertime ramps up a different kind of work schedule for me, where a lot of things get written and a lot of ideas get processed. And so I'm looking forward to being able to come back in the fall and share some of those uh, items with listeners as well. I'm just, I'm very excited To have spring be here. I really enjoyed the winter. I think folks have heard me say before that I really love the cold weather, but I also like the transition of seasons as things start to blossom on the trees and we begin to have a little bit more erratic weather, like we've had a lot of rain here in Chicago, but it's still pretty chilly. And so it's just a very comfortable time for me to layer up and move about in the sunshine, which is kind of good for my head. So all that is going really well. And I have to say, Dan, I really enjoyed the talk that you gave up at Yale, and thank you for making that available and sharing that with us. I'm going to do my best to put a link to that on the show notes as well, so listeners can avail themselves of that. But it was just a really amazing analysis and some very generous comments about Heidi and myself. I'm just grateful. I was grateful to get a chance to look back at our six-year history with you. That really brought a lot of warmth to my heart. I just want to say how grateful I am to you for that.
2: I appreciate that. I'll just say, too, to listeners as well, I mentioned that I did not want to misrepresent Heidi or David, that this was my, I was invited to talk about this, and they were neither consulted nor obligated to to have a role in it, other than one of the things we looked at was obviously the example of this podcast. And David, like you, I to get to that point, to offer this lecture, to put this together, required me going back and looking over the, so many years. And I think, I think I got most of the history correct. I have to apologize. This is a corrections for you know the back of this, the A section of the newspaper that Heidi has an MTS, not an MDiv. Um, <laughs> and so I misspoke there. But nevertheless, I knew she, she had a master's degree in theology and ministry and knows what she's talking about that was the point in that one one segment there.
1: I also had a chance to listen to the talk. I listened to it while I was out walking. And it was really interesting to me, too, not just because it was about parts of it were about this podcast, but your connection to doing public theology, I just thought was really grounded and super interesting. And as somebody in media who believes in embracing what's good about new media as a way to bring the news and bring the gospel, I really appreciated your openness to it while acknowledging its limitations as well. So if listeners do have a chance to listen to it and we can provide the link, it's worth your time. I agree.
0: Also, this past week, I had a chance to speak to the Religion Communicators Conference and Associated Church Publishers joint meeting about the sort of tactics of podcasting. So I didn't have a chance to do the kind of deep dive that Father Dan did, but I was really—I had your remarks in my mind as I was preparing my own sort of approach to this, and mine was much more brass tacks and less theoretical. But what I really like about this is both of us, I think— are thinking very deeply not just about how podcasting works for us, but how podcasting could work for the church and for church-adjacent organizations, you know, to try and actually engage with the various publics that make up the laity in a synodal fashion. And that I just brings me great joy to think about that on so many levels. And I, yeah, it's just my way of saying I really am grateful for these conversations with the two of you and the chance to share these conversations with wider public. which is why I'm also so glad that, uh, again, by the time that you've heard this, we will have had a chance to speak in public to folks. And sorry to be messing with the time tenses here, but but we're really, I think we're all very excited to get the chance to see some folks face-to-face and to interact with the audience in a different way than we have before. So all that is, I think, really good.
2: I was just going to make a joke there, David, that uh, the time reference, you're turning our podcast into a Christopher Nolan movie. I don't know what direction (laughs) in space we're going, but I like it.
0: Well, I will stick to my tenets. I definitely will on that one. (laughs) 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 Listeners, thank you for staying with us as we sort of talked about these shifts in time and space that will be happening. On our podcast today, we're going to be talking about three topics. So recently, there was a SpaceX launch, and it went kablooey in the blue sky. And so we're going to be talking about that and maybe some larger questions about space exploration. We're going to be looking at the three Tennessee bishops that have gotten involved in the gun legislation debate down there in the volunteer state. And we are also going to be Doing a review of the current state of the Synod on Synodality. So, all of that is yet to come here on the Francis Effect. Please stay with us.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with Dan Horan and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On the morning of Thursday, April 20th, a new kind of powerful rocket named Starship, designed by the private space company SpaceX, was launched from a site in South Texas and exploded in the air of the Gulf of Mexico minutes after takeoff. The rocket had no crew on board, and there are no reports of injuries or casualties from the explosion. The Starship rocket was the first of its kind. Designed by SpaceX, which is owned by billionaire Elon Musk, the rocket was made to be entirely reusable. Most rockets include components such as fuel cells that are one-time use and are often jettisoned in the process of leaving Earth's orbit, or later in space. The design of this rocket was a game-changer, according to experts who hailed the engineering progress despite the failure of this particular launch. According to a New York Times report, despite the explosion, quote, the launch achieved a number of important milestones, with the rocket flying for four minutes and getting well clear of the launch pad. The brief flight produced reams of data for engineers to understand how the vehicle performed. End quote. The Starship rocket is the result, in part, of Musk's dream of someday sending human astronauts to Mars. In the meantime, NASA and other agencies see the development of an entirely reusable rocket as beneficial in closer missions to the moon or to space nearer to Earth that this engineering development and investment in new rocket technology comes from a for-profit company like SpaceX, as opposed to a more traditional national organization like NASA, is a reflection of the shift to the privatization of space exploration over the last few decades. According to the Times, quote, SpaceX remains the dominant company in global spaceflight, its rockets have already traveled to space 25 times in 2023, with the most recent launch concluding successfully on Wednesday, End quote. With this shift from the public to the private sector comes a lot of questions and concerns, as well as some benefits and unforeseen opportunities. Dan, why don't you get us started? What do you think of this development in space exploration and the role of SpaceX?
2: Well, one of the things that, that struck me when I heard the news I think a lot of us got the the push notifications on our smartphones from the Times or whatever our primary news sources of the explosion. And anytime there is some sort of a rocket explosion, the first thing that comes to mind is the Challenger, right? So I think of these horrific events in history that that are so high stakes and so costly, both in terms of technology, but also in cost of human life and safety. So I was happy to hear that there were no casualties, that there were no reported injuries in this case, that this was, in fact, intended to be a test launch. So I didn't realize that until after the fact. So I'm grateful for that. I want to acknowledge that from the outset. But I think there are, as you were saying, Heidi, there are certain pros and cons. I have mixed feelings because I think there are, I wasn't yet born in the 1960s from the late 50s through the late 60s when we had this kind of Cold War race to the moon, and people were concerned about Sputnik at first and the Russians making it to orbit before us, and then who was going to make it to the moon. And then you had the flights of the missions of the 60s and 70s with Apollo and all this kind of stuff that in many ways brought the nation together and brought the world together. And then we have the International Space Station in the 80s, 90s, and early aughts. And there's this kind of Opportunity, perhaps, through space and space exploration to bring together different communities, countries that had seen each other and now, again, see each other perhaps as enemies. I think of the former Soviet Union and Russia versus the United States, China as well, collaborating on these international efforts. So... The fact that there has been this decline, certainly in our country, in national investment, in space exploration, particularly with the retirement of the space shuttle some years back, and all the kind of launches of astronauts and supplies to the space station have taken place with these, as they were, disposable rockets, I think it's exciting to see reinvestment. That said, I do wonder, I have mixed feelings because I'm so connected to, I, I associate space research and engineering and exploration with kind of national efforts and kind of government prioritization, that it's odd to see the privatization of space. And I I don't know what I think about that. I guess I'm going to be honest. I feel odd because I think I'm also resistant to the privatization of lots of things that are seen as pertaining to the Public and common good, particularly when it comes to the vastness of this universe. It belongs to nobody. And when we start having private companies and organizations and extremely wealthy individuals getting involved, Elon Musk sent one of his Teslas into space famously a few years back and had this live feed of it circling the Earth orbit. And some of this stuff is weird and hokey, but then, but doesn't take a lot of thought to see how this could get bad very quickly. So I'm curious, as a starting point, what do you two think about this?
0: I have some strong feelings about all of this, and some of them overlap with yours, and some of these may take us in a different direction. So I completely agree That if we are going to explore near-Earth orbit space, and we're going to utilize near-Earth orbit space, it shouldn't be a privatized effort. It should be a national effort. It should be, dare I say it, a socialized effort the way that NASA was. And the the goods and the learning that come from that kind of R&D should be, as with all kind of socialized efforts of knowledge production, should be made available at cost or cheaply to the common wheel, if you will. So I'm very in favor of intense nationally-led research and development. I am going to plant my flag here, pardon the pun, and say I am absolutely against deep space exploration for a number of reasons. Like, I don't think that we should be deluding ourselves that we're going to go to Mars. We certainly shouldn't be deluding ourselves that in any way we're going to make this a kind of profit center, whether we're talking about Jeff Bezos going to mine asteroids or terraforming (laughs) the Martian surface so that it becomes habitable for humans. I'm absolutely against all of that. And for a shorthand as to why, I would turn listeners to a prose poem spoken word piece written by Gil Scott Heron a couple of decades back called Whitey on the Moon. And it can be summed up basically saying, listen, my sister who's living in a squalid apartment just got bit by a rat, but Whitey's on the Moon. And so the priorities of trying to put all this money into a very questionable ego pursuit while there is suffering here on our human shared domain, that's partly why I just sort of say no, no, no.
1: Well, I you know I I prompted you guys by saying I wasn't going to have much to say about this. It's not my area of interest or specialty, but it turns up turns out David that you're raising an issue that actually I had a little conversation this morning. So, the NCR editors meet every morning and I, I happened to share with my colleagues, "Oh, I don't think I'm going to have anything to say about this rocket thing on the podcast today." And this really lively debate and conversation ensued among the six folks in that meeting, and some of it was about this issue that you're raising, David, and this is how it came about. So there were two people who are very, like, pro-space, right? We need to go to space so that we can all drink Tang and have MRIs and microwaves going, and and other, other important discoveries that are made that Dan is rightly concerned could be privatized and not used for the common good. And then the other folks were arguing, like, no, 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 we need to take care of this planet. We can't just all plan to just go find another planet. You know, theologically, God put us on this earth and we're meant to stay here, and we can't just be thinking that we can escape responsibility, environmentally including, for this planet. And so a editor who shall remain unnamed but who later admit that as a child he went to space camp (laughs) pointed out a very interesting fact that I'm going to help circle this all back to church. Did you know that according to canon law, when we land on the moon, newly discovered territories, then the moon becomes part of the diocese of Orlando, because according wow. to di- to canon law, and I'm just finding this here. I was confirming it online. Newly discovered territories fall under the jurisdiction of the diocese from where the expedition originated. So this editor shared this quirky bit of Catholic uh, trivia. But then we said, wait a minute, is that part of the doctrine of discovery that was just recently repudiated? Or I have to be careful because I don't think it was fully repudiated. Is that no longer true? And at that point, I had to say, "End, end of conversation, we all have stories to edit and work to do. But it really does raise some theological and ethical and apparently even canonical issues too.
2: That's fascinating. I did not know that. I mean, it makes sense. As soon as you explained it, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But isn't that something? Yeah. So I wonder what the Archbishop of Orlando thinks about Friday during Lent abstention from meat in space or something like this. (laughs) The kinds of things that bishops often have to jump into and offer dispensations from.
0: I just want to build on that. I recently read a fascinating book called Astrotopia. And one of the core critiques of the book is that when we're looking at these kinds of efforts of privatization of deep space exploration, like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, there's an entire narrative of abandonment that goes on with that. Basically, our Earth is over. And we now need to figure out some other way to go and exploit new territories. And so that ties in with this idea of the doctrine of discovery. It ties in with this idea of rapacious capitalism that sees no natural limits to itself. And so I think that that we can really bring a theological critique here and say, if we assume— That mastery of the earth or be fruitful and multiply means destroying everything and leaving it like so much rubbish in our wake— Then, yeah, let's go and let's destroy the entire universe. But I would like to subscribe to a different narrative, one that is, I think, much more Franciscan that says we are here as caretakers, and we are here to be in harmony with the world that we have been so graciously given, and it's not ours to destroy, and it's not ours to use literally as a launching pad to greater and greater things. We need to be content with what we have.
2: Well, I would just, one little qualification there that actually the Franciscan approach is even more radical, which is not that we're caretakers. We are, but caretakers as members of the same cosmic family. And so there's something to be said about the fact that we are part of creation. We are part of the cosmic world. As the quote often attributed to Carl Sagan says, we are literally star stuff. The heavy metals and elements and nitrogen and all these kinds of things that that make up who we are are forged in the heart of stars. And so there is a kind of cosmic connection. But because of that, I think your point, David, is well put, that, that we have a lot more reflection that's necessary about our place within the cosmos and our place on this earth. And I don't know that we've given a lot of attention to what we have, to use Catholic language, what we have done and what we have failed to do when it comes to our relationship to the more than human world.
1: So it turns out that there are a lot more interesting angles to this story than just discussing Elon Musk. So a lot of theological, moral issues, and maybe even environmental issues. I find it interesting for us to plumb those a little bit. But we have two other topics to attend to in today's podcast. So for now, we'll leave it here and possibly come back to it again in the future. You're listening to The Francis Effect.
2: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, as you know, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. Four weeks ago, a horrible mass shooting at Covenant Christian School in Nashville rocked the communities of central Tennessee and brought national attention once again to our national epidemic of gun violence. In a recent episode, we talked about the saga at the Tennessee Capitol as Republican lawmakers attempted to silence and eject three Democratic legislators who stood in solidarity with thousands of students and families who were calling for gun control. Now, the three Catholic bishops of Tennessee have joined more than 130 religious leaders in the state, adding their names to a letter calling on Republican Governor Bill Lee and the legislature to enact tighter gun restrictions, including so-called red flag laws. The letter, which was led by a state coalition calling for firearms restrictions, Voices for a Safer Tennessee, was signed by Bishop Mark Spalding of Nashville, Bishop David Talley of Memphis, and Bishop Richard Stitka of Knoxville, as well as the Tennessee Catholic Conference. Bishop Spaulding and a number of Catholic priests also joined in an April 18th public event in Nashville called Linking Arms for Change, organized by Voices for a Safer Tennessee, The event formed a three-mile-long chain of concerned citizens throughout downtown Nashville, ending at the Capitol. A similar event was held in Knoxville on the same day. Unfortunately, not all Catholics were pleased by the visible witness of these bishops. Far-right organizations such as the website Church Militant and the Lepanto Institute issued statements condemning the bishops and insisting that gun violence must be viewed as a spiritual crisis, not a political one. David, you joined the Catholic Church in the Nashville Diocese, and both of your children were born and one was baptized in the Memphis Diocese. What does all of this have you thinking about?
0: Well, first of all, I'm grateful that the bishops joined with this public witness. I think it was timely, I think that it was very appropriate, so I disagree with our friends at Church Militant and the Lepanto Institute. However— I found myself repeatedly wishing that instead of being joiners, these three bishops who are— I I believe these three bishops are in pretty close contact with one another. The Tennessee Catholic Conference is a reflection of the wills of these three bishops. And so they have a political lobbying arm that they've been sort of working and creating there. I wish that they had been more at the forefront of actually— being leaders in this instead of followers. And so that's my great disappointment. I wish that bishops would move from simply being vocal on one particular issue and would become much more vocal across a range of issues that have to do with the protection and the sanctity of life. And there are a few that I can think of that are more pressing right now than gun violence. But unfortunately, we have, as we've talked about many times on this program, a, a real kind of lodestar around the abortion issue or around the pro-life issue and we tend to see our church leadership ignore or pass over these other opportunities to, to be vocal and to speak out. I've mentioned that my my wife Kira, when she worked at U.S. Catholic, anytime there was something going on with abortion, she could expect to get a fax from the USCCB pretty quickly, but anytime that there was another life issue in any capacity, there was Silence on the fax machine and silence from the USCCB. So that's my frustration. I'm curious what you two think.
1: Yes, David. Well, I I double checked because I was thinking in the back of my mind, like uh, that I hadn't heard something from the USCCB since the shooting in Tennessee, and of course, then that was followed by shootings, plural, in Kentucky, and of course, to then just the practically weekly mass shootings that we've gotten used to in this com- country. And it is true that there was not a statement from either the USCCB or one of its committees, which is where statements usually come from, on the issue of gun violence or the need for gun legislation. That said, I praise the Tennessee bishops like you for doing this. I'd like to see them as leaders rather than followers. And I certainly have more than a few disagreements with Bishop Sticka. but I'm glad to see when three bishops who may not agree on everything can come together on an issue, It it shows that there's some urgency to it. And like you said, David, during that same time frame that I'm scrolling through kind of the statements that did come from the USCCB, we had three in about a week and a half about the abortion pill issue of being in front of the Supreme Court and in various courts. So that's just a done deal, I'm afraid, is that bishops are going to see anything abortion related as urgent and needing of a statement and that they're fairly unified on. But unfortunately, because of the culture war splintering, perhaps not true about an equally important life issue, which is guns. But again, that three bishops came together in Tennessee, I think we should praise it and give credit when credit is due.
2: Yeah, I guess this is an instance where better late than never, to David's point about the failure to lead as religious leaders. And I think sometimes, I don't want to say this specifically of the, the bishops of Tennessee. I, like you, Heidi and David, I'm grateful that they did come to the table and join with so many other religious leaders who Emphasis on leading had had seen very clear moral obligation to speak out against this, and the real problem, I guess, because I, David, you referred to them as our friends at the at church militant and these other alt right places. I don't know that certainly they don't consider us friends, and I don't consider them friends either. I don't consider them Catholic most of the time, given some of their perspectives, and I think this is one of those instances where it's hard for me to understand why. In something that seems so clear as a life issue when it comes to guns, guns do only one thing, they kill. And one can argue about the necessity of hunting weapons when you're hunting non-human animals to feed your family, or maybe even in some rare instances for sport, but that is itself a morally ambiguous category. Guns do nothing else but kill, animals or humans. And what we see is that that makes it therefore a life issue. You know, not to go down a rabbit hole, but we talk about how abortion. Abortion is something that seems to be presented as a black and white, absolutely clear issue. But as the post-Obs context has suggested, what we've seen is that actually a lot of things that most people would not consider related to abortion care, like miscarriage care, for instance, is very closely tied to that. And that is also about, about life. It's more complex. I have a hard time thinking about guns in in a more complex way than that, because it's so clearly an instrument for death. So, David, I'm kind of curious, since you've, you know, you may be more familiar, you keep an eye on this with your former home there in Tennessee. What are some of these alt right sort of claims about why this is not a political issue, why this um, is—we talk about it as a spiritual crisis, or they've talked about it as a spiritual crisis, but I don't quite understand what that perspective is. Sure, and
0: I'm going to try and give an answer that is brief but doesn't fall into caricature. There's a chance in which the Catholic Church has been influenced by its more evangelical co-religionists down in the Bible Belt. And so there's an entire worldview that goes along with that, and the worldview is— Let's not necessarily look at issues that are material or political. Let's try and find the spiritual forces behind this. So if you've ever encountered the Left Behind series or Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness, those would be good examples of a worldview that says – everything that we're seeing in terms of political conflict is actually a reflection of the deeper attempts of demonic forces to take over our world and to take our world from Christ. And so— the language that comes from some of these organizations that says this should be a spiritual issue, not a political issue, they're talking about a particular type of spiritual warfare. And you can see this spilling not just into the gun issue, but even things like when they say, pray the gay away, which is a shorthand for trying to cure someone of their lifestyle in the LGBTQ world, the whole sort of notion there is these unseen forces have somehow gotten in and have taken control, and we need to wrest control back from these forces, not on a physical or a material level, but on a spiritual level. Is that getting at what you were asking?
2: I, I think it's helpful, and I think I appreciate the kind of analogy into other areas. And for listeners, because this is an audio podcast, you can retroactively add maybe scare quotes, quotes around some of what David was saying in the voice of, because I know it doesn't reflect your own views, but Correct. in presenting that this is what folks in this sort of perspective are thinking and how they view the world. And here's where, as a theologian, as a scholar of spirituality, I get a little bit annoyed, or maybe less than a little bit annoyed, which is... In some sense, yeah, guns and gun violence and all things that we do are inherently a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual concern and crisis because we are always already spiritual beings, right? We are body and soul. We are open to the capacity of the transcendent and of the divine, what we Christians call God. And so every aspect of our lives is somehow touches on the spiritual. I think where I start to have issues with people who think the way that you summarize, David, is that there is a deep compartmentalization that takes place between the sacred and the profane, and that the spiritual realm is this higher kind of neoplatonic world that is removed from this, and it's this sort of Zoroastrian war between good versus evil. and, And that's the kind of Disassociative way of thinking. Because when I hear something is a spiritual problem, it is de facto then an embodied human, real, social, political, religious, family, life. It's all of these things combined together. So I appreciate your characterization, and I think it was a generous presentation of a summary of what others may be thinking. And I would just push back against those who would hold that view and say, there is no separation. The physical, the material is spiritual and vice versa. We are single creatures brought into existence by God in a world that is open to the transcendent and that God entered into not only as the eternal word as incarnate, but the Holy Spirit who continues to draw near to us each and every day.
1: Well, and I guess I would just connect this, too, to some other very sad things in the news lately. Dan, you raised the issue of the whole purpose of a gun is to kill. And is there any other more, I don't know, life-giving purpose to it? And I'm struck by the conversation that I mentioned earlier that I attended among some members of Pax Christi's nonviolence initiative when we're really looking at what does the gospel call to us to in, in terms of Nonviolence. But it does seem to me, and again, I'm trying to be generous to people, to gun owners or people who have other perspectives, that some people see one purpose of gun ownership would be in defense of yourself or your family. And I try to be open to that desire or some people's reading of the Second Amendment that way, which I know is very debatable. And as someone who lived through I lived in Los Angeles during the riots associated with the Rodney King verdict when literally people were standing in front of their homes and stores with weapons trying to stop, you know, looting and destruction. But what we have seen and has been publicized in the last couple of days and weeks is the number of people who are, and here come the scare quotes, defending their property and shooting innocent people who turn into a driveway or knock on a door accidentally. I'm talking about the young man, Ralph Yarrow, and the carload of people who pulled into a driveway. And you have these gun owners, like, reflexively freaking out, perhaps even because of the race, but not always, of the young people approaching their homes. It makes me think, like, it's not even safe to go door to door and sell chocolates for your high school band anymore because everybody is armed to the teeth like it's some sort of wild west and we all shoot first and ask questions later. So that's a long-winded way of saying that I don't even think that this idea that we need weapons for defense is, is working because obviously innocent people are being shot and sometimes killed. So it's just freaking me out these news stories lately.
0: So, Heidi, I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that I think about a lot is once we have given up on the idea that we're going to actually be able to be peaceably interacting with one another. We are so far from the Christian ideal of blessed community and so far from the ideal of how we are called to live by Christ that I don't even see how these people can jump that gap and be like, I am going to be a successful Christian by killing everyone who comes to my doorstep with the castle doctrine. It makes no sense to me.
1: Well,
2: and to that point, David, to bring it back to the fourth century, St. Augustine, doctor of the church, one of the greatest theologians, his understanding of self-defense was not absolute. In fact, he made it very clear, quite differently than what would happen a millennium later in the Middle Ages when the church and state had been established as the two-sword theory, right, that there was this intertwining of political and military power with religious authority. But in the fourth century, as this was beginning to happen in the age of Constantine, one of the things Augustine said is, it is better for you to die a martyr than it is for you to kill another person even in self-defense. So that if—and I think— again, this is something that moral theologians, I think of both the the great Protestant theologian, Stanley Hauerwas, for instance, at Duke, among others, who hold a very strict Christian pacifist view that draw from the insights of people like Augustine. I think of Thomas Merton himself, who drew from these insights as well, that this idea that you are justified in killing another is a fairly late development, and it's only because of the merger of political and military power with religious authority. And so- I would argue that there's nothing Christian about an absolute right to defend oneself or let alone one's property. You can see defending another, defending one's own life and immediate safety is one thing. But to say that you're going to kill another person because they trespass, especially as Heidi was pointing out, these horrible egregious, heinous situations where young people just make the—they knock on the wrong door, they pull into the wrong driveway. There is nothing in Christianity and Scripture and the moral tradition, and frankly, there shouldn't be either in our legal system to justify that. And I think we need to stop with this Second Amendment. You either believe in the Second Amendment absolutely, or you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely, and they are in conflict. That's my view.
0: I agree, and I just want to say I started out this conversation talking about my frustration with the bishops not taking a leadership role in this issue. A few weeks back in one of our earlier episodes, we talked at length about census fide and the census fidelium, the ways in which the laity can participate in the theological process. And I think that there's something here that we can really bring into the conversation that will be useful on this front as well. We can't always wait for our leaders to have the moral seriousness to step out and be vocal and visible on these. But we as laypersons, and I say this for me and Heidi, we can step into that breach and we can actually join with others in organization and solidarity and can begin to bring a morally serious witness to the public sphere. I think that's what we've seen happen over the last four weeks in Tennessee with thousands and thousands of people coming and bearing witness at the Capitol, many of them religious and some of them among those religious are Roman Catholics. I think that is a great starting point for us where we can begin to lead the bishops on these sorts of issues. And that would be what I would challenge our listeners to think about. Prayerfully, where are you being called right now to stand in morally serious solidarity with those that are vulnerable or suffering or those that have been lost too early to the kind of violence that we're talking about? As you prayerfully discern that, and as we prayerfully discern with you, let's find opportunities to join together and to really begin to show census fide and census fidelium in the public sphere. That would be my call. Unfortunately, this is a topic that I'm sure that we're going to come back to again, but for now, we're going to move on. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Pope Francis' Synod on Synodality is moving forward with what's called the continental phase of the three-year process of listening and dialogue for the Universal Church coming to its conclusion. For those who need a refresher, the Synod began in the fall of 2021 with the diocesan, or local, phase, in which parishes and dioceses held listening sessions. That feedback was summarized in a national document, and then the national documents from around the world were synthesized into a working document for the next stage. That working document was titled, Enlarge the Space of Your Tent, and was notable in that it mentioned a number of topics often considered taboo in the church, including LGBTQ relationships, women's ordination, and clergy sex abuse. The next stage, the Continental Stage, featured additional listening sessions and discernment during February and March. Although not directly correlated to the seven continents, there were seven continental groupings, with the U.S. as part of the North American grouping, which also included Canada. Mexico was part of the Latin American and Caribbean grouping. The North American Listening Meetings were held by Zoom, and then the smaller group of writers met in person to compile their findings. That 36-page synthesis document was released on April 12th. Some key themes in that document included the implications of baptism, communion with Christ and one another, and missionary discipleship as a way of living out our baptismal calling. It also mentions concerns about, quote, polarization and a strong pull toward fragmentation, unquote. The next phase, the universal stage, will feature the two month-long bishops' assemblies in Rome, the first this October and the second one in October 2024. Heidi, you've read the North American Continental Phase document and heard from one of the bishops on the writing committee. What are your thoughts as the process continues to move forward?
1: Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about the synod and synodality lately in my position as executive editor, I'm making plans for our coverage of the event that will be happening in Rome coming up in October. I hope to get there myself for a little part of the time to be in person. And as I mentioned, I went to this event at Loyola in which Bishop John Stowe of Lexington, Kentucky, gave the Cardinal Bernadine lecture and spoke about synodality and the common good and talked a little bit about his experience being on He's been involved at the local level and then was also involved at this continental level. And then I don't know if hearing from him colored the way that I read the document, but then it turned out, I forget, his event was, I think, on a Tuesday night and on Wednesday or Thursday, then the North American Continental document was released. And I did read the document. He raised a couple issues that I think are worth pointing out. One was that he was noting and it seemed somewhat disappointed that every other continental grouping was able to hold their listening sessions in person except for the North American grouping and i think we all have learned that as a, as great as zoom is for bringing people together when they're without the costs and other problems of travel it's not the same experience as meeting in person and there's just not that same level of openness or sharing and so I think that there was some concern that affected content and how it was going to move forward. Also, it's worth noting that at this stage, we're not talking about anybody who just wants to show up at these meetings could show up. So these were specifically handpicked people by the bishops or the bishop, the archdiocese or diocese in the United States and Canada. It also sounded like there was maybe a little bit of cultural issue with the French-speaking people from Canada. So. It was not as easy as just everyone was talking in English, and so there might have been some issues there. I think when I read the document, I notice what Bishop Stowe noted as well in the conversations, that that there was different issues raised. So issues like inclusion, LGBTQ issues, concerns about how sex abuse has hurt the credibility of the church and, and the role of women and possibly even women's ordination to diaconate or priesthood These all still made it to the document, but he just noticed like a different level of like they're in there, but they're not dominating in any sort of way. And I'm just going to note that for some people, that's evidence that the process is working and that all voices are there. And our own columnist, Michael Sean Winters, said he thought the document hit all the right notes. But I read the document and I did notice it seemed to have a different tone or at least different emphasis. The three main these that you talked about in the top are there in terms of very focused on missionary discipleship and where what the call of baptism is. These are important things, but I think some, I'll just say it, some progressive Catholics were concerned that as the process moved up the pipeline, that some of their major concerns might be less focused on. And I'm a little bit concerned that might be happening. So I'm going to trust the process and the Holy Spirit and everything, so I don't want to get too negative here. But I'll just say I, I saw some of that in the document.
2: I agree, and that's a concern I've had all along. I've tried to keep an open mind, and to your point, Heidi, to to practice what I preach, particularly about the Holy Spirit. I mentioned St. Augustine in the last segment, and Augustine comes to mind again because one of the ways that grace functions, and for Augustine, grace is the Holy Spirit, it's the gift of God's self, is that grace Functions cooperatively, that we have to, you know, God does not compel us. God does not, we have free will. And so we can choose to cooperate with the Spirit. We can choose to cooperate with God's will or not. We have a whole range of categories to talk about that. So I don't want to rush ahead. It's early still, I think, in the process, and it's a three year long process ahead of us. So I don't want to like pr- pretend that I know that such and such people are or aren't or what have you participating or cooperating with the Spirit. But I will say that there's a pattern of this in the synodal process, right? We see this at the consultative stages, certain things arise. We even see with Instrumentum Laboris, as they get published for the respective synods, there are certain themes that are raised, and then we see the final documents, right, that oftentimes avoid or temper down or kind of churchify some of the more pressing issues like I think, for instance, missionary discipleship, which when Evangelii Gaudium came out in 2013, Pope Francis's reference to missionary discipleship in paragraph 120 was seen as like really cutting edge. But now it's become euphemistic, where it's, oh, we want to talk about accompanying people in difficult social circumstances or ecclesial circumstances. So let's lump that in under a heading called missionary discipleship, where we accompany and meet all people. I mean, that's not inherently bad. It's what's difficult about this. You don't want to It's not a bad thing, but also some things just need to be addressed straight on. Clergy sexual abuse needs to be addressed straight on. There's no need for euphemism. There's no need for avoiding it. I think the role of women in the church needs to be addressed head on. Let's not pretend that this isn't an issue when more than 50% of the world's population and way more than 50% of the congregations of our worshiping communities are women. And they're not represented in positions of power, authority, input, let alone liturgical roles, right? And in some dioceses are strictly forbidden from participating in liturgical roles that canonically and sacramentally they're entitled to. So there are things like that. I think of the 2018 Synod on Young Adults and Vocation, where young adults raised very respectfully, very prophetically, in my view, a number of issues that they saw among their peers and themselves, especially in Generation Z and younger millennials. And by the time the document came out from the final document from the synod, it was just really milk toast. The same thing we saw maybe in a more radical way with the Pan-Amazon Synod. And there were some real the people on the ground the, who exercise their census fide, collectively present a census fidelium around ministry in the church, Ordaining, for instance, women to the diaconate and senior married men to presbyteral ministry, which are precedents for both in our church, and and that just got totally axed. <laughs> it was not present in the end. So I don't mean to pile on, but to say that I I think it's a real concern, and I don't I don't have a whole lot of patience for the kind of euphemizing is that a word the euphemistic sort of way of lumping in. Direct talk under these sort of churchy headings. And so I would like to see us return to some more of that direct talk.
0: I'm going to go meta for a second for a different kind of project that I've been working on in my scholarly trajectories. I've been looking a lot at the ways in which institutions perpetuate themselves. And I'm drawing in particular from a book by Mary Douglas called How Institutions Think and a book by Stafford Beer called Designing Freedom. And one of the takeaways from these two books is institutions survive by simplifying their inputs— And by radically stripping away the complexity of anyone who participates, and if you've ever sat and filled out a form and you've said to yourself at the end of filling out this form this doesn't really capture what it is that I'm complaining about, or this doesn't really capture what my symptoms are, or this doesn't really capture what my experience has been. That is one example of this kind of radical simplification. And institutions do this not to care for the people that are involved in the institution, but to care for the longevity of the institution itself. And I think that we're seeing an example of that here in all of these synodal processes that you've talked about, Dan, that, at every point, the institution looks and said, I think of that great John Mullaney joke, right? Where the Catholic Church has just changed peace be with you and with your spirit, to peace be with you and also with you, that that sort of friction there. And John Mulaney says that he was surprised when he went back after being away for a while and they had changed it to, and with your spirit. And then the punchline is, because that's what needed fixing in the Catholic Church. (laughs) So, you know, this is the same kind of thing. Like, there are real problems that are being named by the participants in this synodal process. Women's ordination to the diaconate, the inclusion and vulnerability of LGBTQ persons— the role of women generally, the role of the vulnerable generally. The institution looks at that and says, wow those aren't the problems that we want to deal with because those are complex and they would involve giving up some of our authority and our comfortable access to violence and to authoritarianism. So let's instead reframe these problems so that they fit with what we actually want to deal with and what we actually want to acknowledge. And that's your sort of example of lumping things under missionary discipleship as the great catch-all. So I'm... I'm not exactly cynical about this process, but I wish that the Catholic Church could be prophetic instead of predictable in this kind of institutional maneuvering. But unfortunately, it's predictable.
2: Yeah, I think it's also a kind of ecclesiastical spring cleaning. When you have a deadline, something's coming up and you don't really want to deal with it. So you're like, you know what I need to do? I need a vacuum. That's what I need to do. That's the, the Mulaney thing. And I, I also want to say, too, I, I agree with you. I, I may sound cynical and on some topics I am. But in this case, I really have been, like so many people, hopeful and continue to be. But I do think that there is a way in which... The synodal process may be a last straw, and if church leaders, and I know Pope Francis does care about this, is concerned about disaffiliation, is concerned about people leaving the church, then you need to hear what their cries are, you know, to quote, paraphrase Psalm 34, like to hear the cries of the poor, to hear the cries of the vulnerable, to hear the cries of the people who don't feel welcomed. And if we don't do that, then there's no complaining that should be tolerated about disaffiliation and why the numbers are down.
1: Yeah, I am cynical. It's a a hazard of the job, I think, in journalism. And I want to praise David's alliteration, the idea of versus being prophetic versus predictable. But I will say, I think there's a little bit of something that I think I am observing going on is that people who would identify as more traditionalists maybe were sort of negative about this whole process of synodality in the beginning and did not get on board with it. And so maybe didn't show up to events that were being held at the parish or diocesan level, did not contribute their input. And so a lot of these early documents had a lot of the voices of the marginalized and the disaffected, which I agree with you, Dan, it should be front and center because these are the things that need fixing. And I just wonder as the process moves forward and up, that we're having more involvement from more institutionally connected type folks, handpicked by the bishop and that sort of thing. And so their voice is valid as well. There's one note One note in the document is that in addition to talking about the pain or the suffering, I forget the language, around people who might feel called to ordination or who for various LGBTQ issue, there was also the pain and suffering held up by people who want the Latin mass and are having restrictions on it. No, so, uh, <laughs>
2: no, I'm just, I'm going to, sorry.
1: I'm just saying False that.
2: False is that what that is then? Yeah,
1: well, I'm just saying that all issues deserve to be at least in there at some point. But I guess my concern is, and I want to do Bishop Stowe justice and say that in his talk, he also was very clear, quoting Pope Francis, that this is not a, what's the language that he uses, legislative, process, that this is not just like the majority votes and then we get some sort of winner at the end of the synod, and that this is a process where we all have to be willing to listen to the other. We all have to be willing to not just look for our pet issue or whatever. That said, (laughs) I'm going to be looking for my pet issues or issues of the most oppressed people that I think don't usually get to be heard because I think that synodality will be a failure if it doesn't allow those voices to come forward.
2: Yeah. And I just want to say, too, I think, yeah, there is a space for everybody to offer their feedback. And that is the purpose, right? And so to take seriously the walking together, that is the people who feel burned by the Latin mass restrictions, that people feel lots of different things. And I want to honor that. But I do file an amicus brief along with David's objection, which is these are not the same things. It's There's an irony here, too, because people who of a certain sort of worldview will use language like the gay lifestyle or something as if this were a choice that somebody was opting into, like signing up for Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop email or something like a lifestyle guru. When we're talking about sexual orientation, sexuality, and gender, we're talking about people as they are, as they're created, as they're created by God into this world. And that is like we talk about race, like we talk about other things related to that. When we talk about our preferences for liturgical styles or music or smells and bells, we are actually talking about a lifestyle. We're talking about your Latin lifestyle. You're talking about your late Renaissance lifestyle. We're talking about your Tridentine lifestyle in cosplay sometimes, right? We don't live in the 16th century anymore. So I think those are actually false Equivalence, which is an understatement, perhaps, but I do think they need to be, they deserve to be raised and they should be recorded, they should be included. But let's, we have to distinguish, you know, I I often say everyone's entitled to their opinion, but not all opinions are equal. (laughs) And we're all entitled to our feelings because they're to some extent outside of our control, but we can't conflate feelings with opinions. And I think that's what we see play out here sometimes is that people, for instance, who are fond of the Latin mass lifestyle feel sad, feel angry, feel hurt, that's not being promoted in the way that they would like. And oftentimes, those communities have expressed that they would like it predicated of everybody. So it's not just promoted for themselves, but it's a uniformity that they desire. And that is different from the reality of trans folks and non-binary folks and other queer folks who are actually having their lives at risk, who are actually being marginalized, who are being targeted in society and in the church. And those are not equal realities. So I don't know. I'm actually still like you, Heidi. You mentioned it's a it's a part of the job, the kind of cynicism that comes with journalism and dealing with the hard facts and dealing with some really horrible things that get uncovered time and time again. I too can be cynical. I think I'm trying to do my best to stay open minded and open to the spirit, but we will see. I imagine we might be in a place analogous. It's not the same thing. Again, I don't mean to present a false equivalence, but analogous to 1958 when John the 23rd announced this council that was going to come several years later, and people weren't sure what was going to happen. So we'll see. I'm not sure what's going to happen either, but I will pray and I will study and look and offer reflections as I can.
0: Well, listeners, I'm sure that we will come back to the synodal process again and again it is something that is very close to my heart as i've said before i have a lot of hope not cynicism about the synodal process and what it what it might mean for the church and Using Dan's illustration of Pope John the 23rd, I have a lot of hope for the possibility of a new direction for the church as we look at the synodal process coming into every aspect of our life, as Pope Francis has said that he wants to see happen. So, we encourage you to stay with us on this journey as we continue to explore possibilities for the church. We're so grateful that you listened to our conversation this episode. We will be back. In two weeks with our live episode that is being taped at St. Mary's College. We look forward to joining you then, but for now, you've been listening to The Francis Effect. On behalf of Heidi and Father Dan, thanks for being with us. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.